Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary-style podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and for the first time in the show's life, I'm voicing the entire episode. This is episode 9, Midwinter. Mike Singleton was a 27-year-old high school English teacher in Cheshire, a county in the northwest of England, when he first came to computers. It was 1978, and he'd just received a Sinclair 32-step programmable calculator for his birthday. He soon finished writing his first program, a simple matchstick game, then moved on to a utility program to help his friend at a betting shop with the complicated equations used in a special set of 13 bets called Around the Clock. The pair had grander ambitions, so they shared the cost of a Texas Instruments calculator that could manage up to 200 steps per program. With that, they were able to design a calculating utility for 15 different types of bet. And then they thought, Maybe we can write a program that will not only calculate the bets, but also do all the office work in the betting shop as well. They bought a Commodore PET for this purpose. A PET, as its users commonly called it, which was one of the earliest pre-assembled personal computers. But their best laid plans proved a bust when they discovered that data entry took too long for them to be able to cope with the rush of punters heading to the counter to place their bets right before the start of a horse race. So Mike messed around for a while, and he soon came up with a new betting game. It was a computer-run horse race called Computer Race, complete with animated horse graphics based on famous time-lapse horse photographs. He intended the game for use on days of inclement weather, when there's no horse racing, so that punters could at least bet on a virtual race. They sold a copy to a shop in Ireland, but couldn't publish it locally, because it was deemed to be a borderline case for breaking Britain's betting laws, which outlawed entertainment and comfort within betting shops because they encourage people to gamble. His programming adventures did not end there, however. Mike next made another game on his pet, a hand-assembled effort written entirely in machine code that occupied what was then a staggering 12 kilobytes of memory. That game, Space Ace, was published commercially by Petsoft and at 300 copies sold, managed to break the platform's sales records. At around the same time, Petsoft was in talks with Sinclair to write software for the new ZX80 home computer, so in the anticipation of that, Mike started to learn the new system. When the deal ultimately fell through, Mike rang up inventor and entrepreneur Sir Clive Sinclair, who you can probably guess is the founder of Sinclair Research. He was just Clive back then. Clive told him to send his games along, and a while later Mike got an invitation to Sinclair headquarters in Cambridge 
to look at the ZX80 successor, the ZX81, a computer built for the masses. Soon after, Mike used his time off over school holidays to write Games Pack 1, a collection of six tiny games programmed in BASIC that went on to sell an incredible 90,000 copies. And these were not good games, by the way, they were actually quite terrible. From there, his confidence and skill steadily improved. He quit teaching in 1982 to focus on game development full-time. He stepped up to programming multiple machines, the Commodore VIC-20, the BBC Micro, and the ZX81's more powerful successor, the ZX Spectrum. And he made more games, all of them arcade-style action, and began to explore the limits of what was possible on these machines. One game, Three Deep Space, even shipped with stereoscopic 3D glasses. As you can imagine, it didn't work very well. But apparently if you had just the right kind of vision, you might get a decent experience. While all this was going on, he ran a popular play-by-mail game called Star Lord a grand strategy game set in space in which players could send in their moves and he'd mail back full-colour maps with their location and detailed status reports. All for the affordable cost of one and a quarter pounds per turn. Then came what many consider to be his magnum opus, The Lords of Midnight. Mike started on the game after a meeting with his friend Terry Pratt, founding and recently departed editor of Computer and Video Games magazine, who had just taken up the role as head of a new publisher called Beyond Software. The Lords of Midnight was intended to be kind of like best-selling adventure game The Hobbit, except better. And it was. It was a strategic war game encased in an adventure game with a high-level objective to destroy the evil witch King Doomdark, a Sauron figure if ever there was one, and to save the land of Midnight from perpetual winter. The great triumph of Lords of Midnight was its technology. Mike once said that he preferred to begin his game projects with a programming technique, a technological hook that can define the possibility space, as he then moves into exploring the game mechanics and deciding on thematics. Before he had the concept for Lords of Midnight, he had a purely technological idea. How can a game's graphics be made more relevant to its action? Here, with a mighty feat of programming, Mike Singleton made perhaps the first video game place that seemed real. To fit his great Tolkien-esque universe into the Spectrum's mere 48 kilobytes of memory, he had devised a graphical trick called landscaping, which procedurally drew the game's vast world to the screen not from above, as was the norm, but from a rudimentary first-person perspective. It presented panoramic views of the landscape set before the player, views that could be rotated around in any of eight compass directions, by checking where a player was on the map and which way they were facing, 
and then plotting out the nearby landscape features in this panorama view at a scale appropriate to your distance from them. What this meant in practice was simple. In the worlds of midnight, if you could see something, you could go there. At a time when other games would boast of having dozens of locations, the Lords of Midnight crammed in 4,000, with 32,000 separate corresponding views, and where Melbourne House's remarkable computer adventure, The Hobbit, had needed a minute or more to draw its purely decorative graphics, the Lords of Midnight could put its equally impressive, yet very much functional visuals on the screen in mere seconds. And the technology was not just about expansive maps and panoramic views. That same layering that made it possible to walk ever deeper and farther into what amounted to a billboard also enabled a freedom to make your own Tolkien-esque adventure. There were four lords that could be recruited and moved independently from each other, epic quests to complete, caves to explore, enchanted weapons and items to discover, armies to fight, and two different approaches to victory. Either a military conquest, led by one lord, Luxor, the owner of the Moon Ring, or a stealthy approach via completing quests with another lord, Morkin, whose ability to resist the psychological power of Doomdark's warriors, Ice Fear, meant he could find and destroy Doomdark's Ice Crown at the Tower of Doom in Ushgarak. Which probably all sounds like gobbledygook to you if you're unfamiliar with Tolkien stories, but for those of you who do know Tolkien, you'll notice it's a pretty heavy-handed reference to the story of The Lord of the Rings, except now with the option for you to pick your own path to victory. Mike quickly followed up with a sequel that managed to squeeze even more people and places and things to do into the Spectrum's paltry 48k of RAM. But this came at the expense of some of the Lords of Midnight's character as a handcrafted world. Then he made or contributed to several more games over the next few years. There was a side-scrolling strategy game called Dark Scepter and an early attempt at real-time tactics with the 1988 title War in Middle-Earth which was not just inspired by Tolkien's world, but also directly set within it. And there were various other games as well. But I want to focus here on the game he made after. A game that pushed 16-bit computer technology and game design more broadly, in similar ways to what the Lords of Midnight had done with 8-bit machines. I'm talking about Midwinter a 1989 Atari ST and Amiga game that defied classification. It was partly a stealth game, but also a strategy game, and an open-world game, and a first-person shooter. And some of these terms didn't even exist yet. And it was an action game, an RPG, an adventure. It had elements of pretty much everything, so let's not even bother trying to describe it in terms of its genre. Midwinter was a game about the end of the world, 
A game set in a future where most creatures, human or otherwise, have been wiped out as a result of a meteorite impact, some 59 years before the story begins. This is a world ravaged by war, famine, extreme climate change, massive social and economic upheaval, and all the deadly bickering among humans that you'd expect these forces would intensify. Unlike The Lords of Midnight, which he'd made single-handedly, Mike developed Midwinter with help from his friends at Maelstrom Games, a company that he'd co-founded when he was unable to find a publisher for that 1987 game Dark Scepter, which had been released to critical acclaim and notably introduced a four-channel sound technique to the audio-poor spectrum. Now Midwinter's origins lay, as ever, for a Mike Singleton game, in technology. With the 8-bit home computer era fading into the background, and much more powerful 16-bit machines in full swing, they'd been exploring the capabilities of the Atari ST and Amiga. One day in 1988, they completed a tech demo that made a huge mountain out of 96 flat-shaded polygonal faces and allowed you to move smoothly around this mountain. Abstracted away, what the feat meant was that they could have large, solid, 3D vector-drawn objects on the screen and then scroll smoothly and quickly both past and around them. So you could have a three-dimensional mountain and you could walk past it in real time. From there, Mike outlined a basic design. He wanted the game to incorporate elements of chess, to have multiple characters moving around the world in the same kind of way that chess pieces move independently around a chessboard, acting in concert as well as as individuals. And the theme reportedly came from an internal push at publisher Microprose to make its operations more environmentally friendly. They'd done research into what the world might be like in 50 years and found the exciting prospect of a new ice age. With Microprose's backing, Mike and his team worked on the game for several months before they put it out in early 1989 to rave reviews and strong sales. The One magazine noted with admiration that the in-game sun shines from the south, which means that players could navigate by the direction of shadows on the ground. And they gushed over its functional yet remarkable presentation. The wind whistles in your ears as you hang glide, they wrote in a review of the Atari ST version, and it gets louder the nearer you get to the ground, and the sound of waxed wood on snow as you ski varies according to the incline of the slopes. Best of all, though, they continued, the directional sound means that you don't even have to see the enemy to destroy it. 
Amiga Format and Zap were no less enthusiastic in their praise, with the review in the latter calling its graphics breathtaking and its atmospheric stereo sound deemed extremely good. They concluded that it's a superlative, immense program that is every bit as good as you'd expect from Mike Singleton. Amiga Power went even further with their conclusion, which stated, never has so much effort been spent on creating a new environment. It's not a game, it's a virtual reality. Be there. Midwinter offered 32 playable characters, each of whom had their own personality, talents, and loyalties that you had to deal with and who could be directed to collaborate or to work alone. Their relationships were complex, mired in jealousy and hatred and admiration, and all the usual things that blight a small community. In a clever design conceit, Mike broke the game into turns that lasted for two hours. So you would control one character for two hours of game time, then time would rewind back and you'd control the next character for the same two-hour period, with time only moving beyond that two-hour period once every character had had their turn. They had several modes of transport available to them, along with a full suite of possibilities. You might choose to pick off the enemy leaders with sniper fire, or take down vehicles with missiles and grenades, or perhaps sneak around them to focus on a bigger target. There were locals to call on for passive resistance. Some were skilled in useful professions, like doctors, and others were merely ready to do their bit. And if the Lords of Midnight had felt huge, with its 4,000 locations and 32,000 static views, then Midwinter was positively enormous at 160,000 square miles of explorable terrain. Yet that size was secondary to the weight of its story, to that sorry plight of the people of Midwinter Isle and their fallible all-too-human hero, ice-locked and struggling to survive, not just the brutality of this frozen wasteland, but also that of their far better equipped and better organized would-be conquerors. This was the stuff of the future. The stuff of now. Yet Mike Singleton had made it happen 30 years ago. With Midwinter, Mike had once again redefined what home computers were capable of, and what games could be. In a technical sense, it was very much still a game beholden to its time. A game flush with the shortcomings and limitations of a computer that could barely handle the simple flat-shaded 3D graphics and open-world environments that were thrown at it, even accounting for Mike Singleton's programming wizardry. It was a game that depended on the player's imagination and their patience to fully appreciate. But it was worth that investment, because in Midwinter you knew you'd found a fragment of the future. This was not a game where you played the Chosen One, anointed by the gods and fated to use his supreme strength and almighty enchanted weaponry 
to overpower the evil bad dudes. It had none of these simple fantasy tropes. Midwinter was a game grounded in science, in thoughtfulness. It dealt with mature themes like eco-terrorism, climate change, vulnerability, and the consequences of political inaction. Midwinter felt real, in ways that no game before it had managed, and indeed that few since have repeated. A game about a man and his friends trying to protect the only home they know, in a world that is cruelly uncaring for them. A game where you won't fail because you couldn't move your thumb fast enough, but because you were careless, or impatient, or you didn't keep your cool when you needed to. It was even possible to have the poor hero, Captain John Stark, leader of the Free Villagers Peace Force, get critically injured or captured and imprisoned, while his fellow resistance fighters win the war without him. Midwinter was a game where trees aren't a mere decoration, or at worst a temporary setback. But actually they were a potential death trap. A world where you can't point a weapon dead straight for hours on end, regardless of your proficiency with rifles. Or ski endlessly across an island without rest. Because at some point, your character's muscles will fatigue. Your character's body will give out on them. If you pushed them too hard, too fast, their vision would fade and they'd pass out from exhaustion. It was a world that carried on without you. And it was filled with people who had lives and motives and loyalties that were independent of your needs as the player. This world did not exist to service you. Your story. Your adventure. This world felt real because it didn't particularly care whether you were in it or not. It was a world where trust is earned, and where each individual character's actions dictate what happens, rather than some already written script. And perhaps most of all, Midwinter was a game where the little victories felt huge and meaningful in ways that its players would remember decades on, because they survived through sheer determination, and they found a way, somehow, to save the villagers of the Isle of Midwinter. Or because they didn't. But they made a go of it anyway. They died trying. They got captured and imprisoned and made a real hash of it. It was memorable because it was unpredictable. And because your mistakes had consequences that were more complicated than whether or not you'll see a game over screen. A sequel followed a year later, then a spiritual successor with a much more detailed world called Ashes of Empire came in 1992, 
before Mike made a third Awards Midnight game in 1995. Come 1998, he was freelance again, at which point he fell into being more of a programmer than a designer. He later moved to Switzerland, where he continued to work on games. He had a hand in the PlayStation 2 game, Indiana Jones and the Emperor's Tomb, as well as Wrath Unleashed and Stranglehold, and the Xbox 360 and PS3 game Race Driver Grid, among a whole bunch of other post-2000 PC and console titles, some of which went unreleased and others which did come out. And he continued to be renowned within the industry for his brilliant programming skills. And then towards the end of last decade, he returned to teaching, and he took up mobile game development. When he died from cancer in October 2012, he was much of the way through a rewrite of The Lords of Midnight for iPhone and iPad. He had plans also to revisit the Isle of Midwinter, but perhaps it's okay that he never got the chance to do so. Brilliant as they surely would have been. Because even without these modern reimaginings of his old technology, his influence is still felt in every modern game that flirts with the idea of a world that you can inhabit, of a game that manages to make its place feel both big and small at the same time, just like they should. The Life and Times of Video Games is written, edited, produced, and scored by me, with a bit of additional music this week by Chris Zabriskie, and also some sound effects from the Amiga, DOS, and Atari ST versions of Midwinter. Don't forget to check out the new video game, news, and esports podcast, Montcast, at twitchclub.com slash Montcast, if that sounds like your thing. And if you enjoyed this episode, please tell other people about it. It's also a huge help when you leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or, or in Overcast or Castbox or whatever the other ones are called. And it'll really help me to get the word out if you can share a link on your social media or just rave about it to everyone you know. The Life and Times of Video Games is on Twitter and Instagram at lifeandtimesvg. I am on Twitter at Mossassi. If you can afford to make a monthly donation to help me get the show to a point of long-term sustainability, and really we're not that far away now, head to lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. As thanks, you can get things like ad-free episodes and bonus content, and your name in the credits, like two of my current supporters, namely Simon Moss and Wade Trigaskis. I'm sorry if I'm butchering your name. And even the chance to pick a topic and boss me around on a future episode. I now also accept one-off donations via PayPal. So if you've got a few bucks lying around and want to sound your appreciation, you can send the payment via paypal.me slash mossrc. 
I recently added the show to the Radio Public podcast directory. Radio Public is a public benefit corporation that wants to make the podcasting ecosystem more sustainable for everyone, including small-time independent producers like me. And they're even putting their money where their mouth is. They've named the life and times of games among their picks for indie shows to watch. And they have a fantastic paid listens program that pays podcasters two cents every time a listener hears at least 60% of an episode in the Radio Public Android or iOS app. All you have to do is download the app, subscribe to the show on there, and put up with an ad being played at the beginning or maybe at the end of each episode you listen to. And so far, it's been really easy and seamless when I've tried it. Head to radiopublic.com to find out more. And as always, you can find links to everything mentioned here at lifeandtimes.games. Coming up next time, we'll be looking at the early days of virtual pets. Should be interesting. Until then, adios. My name is Richard Moss. Thanks for listening. <laughs>